It's The World This Week, The World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Joining us from Washington, Shannon Vavra, national security reporter for The Daily Beast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thanks, uh, thanks as well to Erika Kolterman, France uh, correspondent for the German language desk of the French news agency AFP. Guten uh, Abend. Being with us. How are you? <laughs> Very fine, thank you. <laughs> All right. Matthew Dalton, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. How have things been this week? Okay, thanks. Okay. <laughs> Just okay. Just okay. All right. Robert Parsons, France 24 chief international affairs uh, editor. Everything's fine. Everything. Okay. <laughs> All right, there you go. You can listen uh, yes, listen, and also like and subscribe to The World This Week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other fine streaming services. Two weeks of urban warfare. Can Sudan survive a third? We can show you images from a, a bombed-out marketplace uh, in the uh, Nile neighborhood of Bari in the capital, Khartoum. On paper, there's a new 72-hour truce between warring generals but that's been rocked in the capital and uh, elsewhere by fresh gunfire and uh, airstrikes. The UN's evacuated foreign nationals. Uh, uh, foreign nationals are also fleeing uh, from other countries by air, by sea, by land. And those that have the means to buy bus tickets, whose price ticket, uh, prices have uh, skyrocketed, have been able to flee Khartoum, like here, further north on the road to Egypt. The fighting was constant for nearly three or four days. It was tough. Bombing and shooting day and night everywhere. We didn't have any other option but to leave Khartoum and come here to the River Nile state. Robert Parsons, uh, what we have here is an argument uh, between two generals saying this town isn't big enough for the two of us and it's brought us to the brink of another civil war. Yeah, that's that's the way it looks. I mean, there's a, if, if you look at it in sort of classical terms of, you know, one side being representing the social class interests of one group or the ethnic group interests of another, you know, it's just not like that. This is, this is pure naked power uh, that both both these men are after. And, but the problem is that the longer it goes on, the greater the danger is that it will spread from a power game between these two men into something much more menacing than that. And it already is doing in parts of Western Darfur, where the ethnic conflicts that we witnessed during the, the 2000s are beginning to ignite again. You know, we, was it 300,000 people killed in the 2000s? Uh, over 2 million people turned into refugees and IDPs. That could happen again already in the last two or three days. Uh, in, in one small town, the fighting around there in Western Darfur, over 200 people have been killed. Nobody's really putting much focus on that. The focus has been on Khartoum and the exodus of Western diplomats from Khartoum, you know, for better or for worse. But in the west of the country, we already see the signs of something much more dangerous beginning to happen. Uh, and that, I think, will be the, the, the major concern of, of, of people at the moment, trying to dampen things down and prevent this escalating into something which could really explode and suck in other groups around the region. 
we, we could see Ulrika on this map. Uh, uh, Jemena in western Darfur near the border uh, with Chad uh, is where there's been a lot of heavy fighting in, in recent days. I actually covered Darfur in 2003, and what we see now is uh, just a sort of re-import of the violence that happened there because RSF, the, the army, the militia of one of the generals, is nothing else but the, the old Janjaweed uh, who grew up to a proper army who was already in Yemen and uh, in Libya. And uh, so they, they are not... Uh, um, they have no respect for anything. And it's exactly the same methods that were used already in, in Darfur in 2003. And now they're getting all these violence without any rules right in Khartoum. And it could just trigger another big, big, huge refugee crisis. What we're seeing now is just the rich people getting flown out because they are diplomats and the Europeans and, and Western countries. and Everyone is interested in helping them. But it's only because it's very expensive and very tiring to get out. I think those people who are still there, they also want to flee. And so this is going to be huge and massive and uh, will have an impact on all the other countries. So I think it's really big drama. For four years since uh, the, the peaceful revolution that ousted longtime strongman Omar al-Bashir, the international community pushed civilians to share power with a military that never went away, uh, an international community that, well, didn't really see coming uh, that this brewing battle between the junta leader, Abdel Fattah al-Buran, and his nominal number two RSF leader, Hamedi, would, uh, would uh, spill over. Here you see uh, the images, Ulrika, of uh, the uh, U.S. Secretary of State with the U.N. Secretary uh, General. Um, is, what, what responsibility well, it, does the international community have in, in all this? I mean, the U.S. always played a big role in Sudan, and um, they're helping to negotiate ceasefires and peace agreement, and they helped um, to settle the, the conflict and the independence of South Sudan. But right now, the, the truth is, doesn't really work. There are so many a new day, a new truth. So um, there's no, no hope for the time being that, that it will actually be settled because none of the two generals will lose power, influence and wealth. I mean, they're also struggling about influence and there are gold mines and there are always economic interests involved as well. Uh, many dual nationals among those foreigners being uh, evacuated. Uh, Shannon Vavra, I know the Daily Beast this week reported on uh, one couple from Chicago uh, stuck uh, in, in, in Sudan. 16,000 uh, U.S. Uh, passports uh, uh, for the people. People among inside of of Sudan, is this putting this story on the map where you are? Yes, it definitely is. And as you mentioned, my colleagues at the Daily Beast have been able to speak with some members of a family who have family members in Sudan who tell us they feel a little bit abandoned by the U.S. government in terms of evacuations. Now, we know that, of course, many people are evacuating of many citizenships, right? And the United States government has stepped in to help evacuate diplomats evacuating the embassy just several days ago. But the message from the United States government for other American citizens who remain in Sudan is, you need to figure this out yourself. There's resources that the U.S. government is providing, for instance, intelligence and reconnaissance and surveillance for different evacuation routes. But this is kind of a lesson learned for, for many people who travel abroad and many countries where coups have happened before in previous years and where they need to watch out for themselves. The State Department, 
looks like it's going to be providing bulletins and security alerts for Americans. But if you judge that you want to go to another country, it doesn't look like when push comes to shove or when things go awry, the U.S. government is going to come and step in and save you. The, the whiplash, I wonder, from Afghanistan and that botched evacuation, I wonder if that's really impacting some of the messaging we're hearing from the Biden administration right now. Um, and it's the same message we heard about Ukraine. We heard Afghanistan, this mass evacuation is an exception to the rule. And we're seeing that play out here. Uh, and we, we heard a lot of references to Afghanistan uh, in Britain this week because there was criticism of the of the UK uh, government uh, for the way that it, it first evacuated its diplomatic staff. There was even a bit of tension with Germany yeah. uh, over, over that matter, Robert Parsons. And then then it stepped things up and then and let, put, put on some extra flights from the airport that I think it was a, a military airport just to the north of Khartoum and started to get hundreds out, I think, but, you know, well, well short of the total number of British citizens and people working in Britain uh, who were still in Khartoum. And the message that the British government was giving was exactly the message that American citizens have been getting now in, in Sudan as well. You have to make your own way out. We'll try and provide some sort of information service about the best ways to do that and the security of the routes you choose to take. But ultimately, it, it's your, your choice. But there, there have been some awkward moments which have been playing out in the British press where people, for instance, doctors have been working in uh, Brit British hospitals but aren't British citizens, but have work permits to be in Britain, have turned up at the airport and been turned away by the, uh, the British military. Yeah, and of course, for the Sudanese themselves, seeing the foreigners go, there is, for some, uh, for many, a feeling uh, of abandonment. Uh, everybody wants to get out of Khartoum right now, a city of 8 million, uh, where, which seems to be the prize for both sides in this battle. Now, uh, not... Very far away from uh, Sudan, uh, earlier this week, France 24's team in Tunisia filmed sub-Saharan Africans setting off from Sfax. Uh, the Italian Coast Guard uh, warning it could face a record number of uh, undocumented migrants trying to cross the Mediterranean uh, this uh, summer. Uh, there is this feeling, Matthew Dalton, that uh, uh, if this spirals further, it's not you won't be able to contain it to just Sudan. Well, Sudan already is a big source of refugees of people coming to Europe. And, and of course, um, so are a lot of the surrounding countries, um, uh, Chad and elsewhere. Um, and of course, adding to potentially adding to the instability is that um, there's concern among West, Western officials that actually Russia is playing um, a negative role in this whole crisis because uh, Wagner, the, the private militia, has operations in Sudan. They own mines in Sudan. And they have um, been offering weapons to RSF, one of the, 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 the militia there, um, and potentially fueling the conflict, fueling the, the instability there. Uh, so um, they don't know whether this is part of some kind of coordinated effort coming, you know, perhaps from Moscow to, to, to really kind of destabilize the situa situation in Sudan and also attack some of the Western um, countries that are present. You know, we saw that some of the, the U.S. diplomatic convoys have been attacked 
um, in, in the last few weeks. Um, so the, that's a concern that's coming both from the U.S. and, and France, actually. Quite a, tur a Turkish okay. evacuation plane also got hit by, by, <laughs> no. Everybody's getting hit in the crossfire. Yeah, the and, and if, you, if you look at it at a wider angle, if you look at the whole region where those people are going, they're going to Chad, they're going to South Sudan, to the Horn of Africa, there's already a drought and they're already hmm. um, suffering in uh, the climate changes, uh, climate change um, consequences. And so it, it will be a huge humanitarian catastrophe. It, it's, it's really only the beginning that we are seeing right now. Times of crisis? Well, you need a pair of experienced hands. At least that's the argument of 80, the 80-year-old 80 president of the United States of America. Let's finish this job. I know we can. Because this is the United States of America. There's nothing, simply nothing we cannot do if we go together. So that's part of that uh, video that uh, Tuesday morning uh, Joe Biden uh, put out, making it official that he's running in uh, 2024. Uh, Shannon Favre, that's not a surprise. Uh, is the mood in the U.S. now that the week is nearly at an end that, well, this is just normal? You know, obviously a lot of incumbent presidents choose to run for re-election and are often successful, but there's a lot of conversation right now about President Biden and whether it's prudent for him to run at his age. Uh, I believe there was an NBC News poll out this week that showed 70% of Americans who are of voting age don't think he should run again, and 69% of them thought that age played a factor in that, that thinking on their part. Um, and I think that's something we're gonna have to think about moving forward. Um, but at least on the foreign policy front, you know, the, the field is already filled with potential candidates and candidates who are jockeying for attention and already having vastly different opinions on even just when we look at the Ukraine conflict. Um, so I think there's going to be some very interesting conversations to see play out in terms of what a future presidency might look like, whether it's a Donald Trump, a Joe Biden, a Ron DeSantis, who admittedly hasn't announced his candidacy, or a Nikki Haley. Um, you know, you've got, of course, Joe Biden with his record from the past several years with Ukraine, but then you also have Ron DeSantis saying we shouldn't get into, quote, a territorial dispute uh, between Russia and Ukraine, um, or Nikki Haley saying we shouldn't put money into Ukraine. Um, although Nikki Haley, to, to her credit, does speak a little bit more about how we should be hoping for a Ukrainian victory to prevent sort of a broader war uh, with Russia potentially invading. Poland or the Baltics. So some very interesting jockeying to watch there. Yeah, it kind of adds a sense of urgency to this Ukrainian counteroffensive because uh, it's as if the deadline is that 2024 uh, election, Ulrika Kulterman? Sorry, sorry. The, the, the 2024 election in the United States could help determine which way the war goes in, in Ukraine. Well, I, I'm not sure if that really is such a big issue. I, I think the election campaign is... Um, it will be tricky in, in the States compared to the first time when Biden was running for presidency and he was doing the campaign from his basement and uh, it was locked down and now it's going to be a totally different story. So um, I, I'm not even sure it really, really make it. And are there no other candidates available? I mean, is, is, is that all the talents I have, like two old white men in this whole huge country, United States? And have, Trump is not that much younger. And um, well, there are people saying, OK, he's uh, on a ticket with Kamala Harris, but why doesn't uh, someone younger run right. oh, it's a for herself? 
Yeah, it's a it's a good point that uh, during his first reelection, his first election campaign, he didn't have to do as much uh, stumping out, going out on the campaign trail because of the limits of posed by the pandemic. And um, whether you know, it's a real question whether he has the endurance for that kind of strenuous campaigning. You know, America is a really big country; you got to go all over the place. Um, the swing states are not you know just all in the upper Midwest, so you have to go all over the place. Um, and it's going to be if there's not a challenge to him in the primaries. I suppose that make things a bit easier for him as well. Yeah, that's that's true. And and um, you know, but Biden fundamentally, he's a pretty weak candidate. And under normal circumstances, he would be looking uh, at a defeat. I think it is very unpop. I mean, he's pretty unpopular. Forty two percent. Yeah, Macron can only dream of it. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's true compared to yeah, but yeah, it's compared to, but for a normal president who's facing re-election, he's pretty unpopular. Only fifteen percent of the country thinks for a normal president. <laughs> I'm noting what you're saying, <laughs> not compared to Macron, but compared, you know, fifteen percent of the country thinks that uh, things are going in the right direction. So he's he's a weak candidate, but the exceptional circumstances Trump on the other side. Yes. Okay. So, so Joe Biden is of a certain age. And if you want to charm the most powerful person in the world, best to serenade him with the music of his generation. Just ask <laughs> South Korea's president. Welcomed Wednesday for a White House state dinner. A long, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Music used to make me smile. And I really felt my chains that I could make those people dance. Maybe they'd be happy for a while. Robert, you're, you're probably too young to know that song. It's called American Pie. It's by Don McLean. Uh, your thoughts on, on, on uh, yeah, the, Joe Biden again. He's in his ninth decade. Yeah, I mean, the, the calculation to me seems to be that it's going to be Donald Trump he's running up against. Uh, otherwise, I don't think he'll be putting his candidacy forward now at all. I mean, the, the calculation will be that up against Trump, he wins. Up against DeSantis, he probably loses. But DeSantis isn't going to be the candidate. Uh, it may turn out that they got it completely wrong, of course, and that tr Trump won't, won't be the candidate. But as things stand, he, he must feel that he's got a pretty reasonable chance. Both Biden and his opponent from 2020 acting like a rematch is a certainty. Donald Trump campaigning in New Hampshire on Thursday, where he took shots at Republican rivals, including the governor of Florida and at Biden. But he's got issues of his own. He's got his latest trial going on, a civil suit by a columnist who accuses him of rape. Other dark clouds that were brewing. His former vice president, who refused to cede to pressure during the January 6th storming of the Capitol and certified Biden's election, testifying Thursday before a grand jury. Mike Pence spoke earlier in the week to a television network CBS. I think I'm limited about what I can say about the proceedings of the grand jury or the decision of the judge, but people can be confident that we'll, uh, we'll obey the law, we'll comply with the law. So, Shannon Favre, if uh, a case is brewing over uh, what seems to many like an attempted coup, uh, or certainly a constitutional push uh, on January the 6th, is Donald Trump a certainty to be the candidate for the Republicans? You know, I think that's such a live question. We'll obviously have to see how it plays out. But I do think one thing we have to keep in mind is that, yes, Biden won in 2020. 
but we have to remember that there's still a lot of conspiracy theories that various Republicans are embracing about 2020. There are many voters who feel disenfranchised and who are being fed this psychological operation that their vote did not count in 2020. Um, and I think if we look at the numbers for certain rematch models right now for, for Biden, if I have my numbers correct, I think it's that he only wins against Trump by 1.5%. Um, and again, if I have my numbers correct in 2020, he won the popular vote by 4.5%. I think it's a lot closer than some memory sometimes serves, especially as we have Biden in the White House right now. Um, and I think another thing that President Biden will be up against is the economy. Um, we've got massive inflation right now, um, and a lot of economists are predicting that there's this potential depression looming, and whether or not that happens again remains to be seen. But I think he's got some heavy headwinds here to deal with. All right, speaking of political veterans, Turkey's president, who's a, a, a sprightly 69, also drawing attention to his health this week, a stomach bug forcing Recep Tayyip Erdogan to miss a third straight day of campaigning this uh, Friday. And when he did appear Thursday by video link alongside his Russian counterpart for the inauguration of Turkey's first nuclear power plant, well, the country's leader of 20 years did not exactly look his best, Robert Parsons. <laughs> he didn't. Uh, well, he, he's in a tough fight as well. and I don't know whether this will have much influence unless it turns out to be a more serious illness than people have been saying at this stage. But uh, the election is on May the 14th. Uh, at the moment, it, it's neck and neck, about 45%, with most of the, most of the survey po polling surveys suggesting that the alliance led by Kemal Kilic Daroglu is just ahead um, and that they'll go to a second round. Uh, that'll be a, a, a real test. If it goes to a second round, uh, it's going to be very tough for, for uh, Erdogan. You know, the thing, things have not been going his way in terms of, we're just talking about the economy in the United States. The economy is not in good shape in Turkey either, with inflation very, very high, and a lot of criticism of the methods being used to, to deal with inflation in Turkey. Uh, so given that, plus the, the, the problems that have arisen over uh, the earthquake in the east of the country, uh, a month or so ago, uh, and problems, criticisms of corruption, some of them associated with the follow-up to that earthquake as well, over the, the, the quality of the housing uh, in southeastern Turkey. You know, he's really in a fight here. The, the, the problem really for the, for the opposition is that it is, it's a, it's a six-way coalition, uh, and they don't normally get on very well with each other, and that's been showing during the campaign. Uh, they're not all pulling in the same direction. Uh, Kilic Daroglu is not a dynamic campaigner, although just recently he put out a, uh, a video which went viral in Turkey. Uh, that's just him sitting in his kitchen, effectively, at home, talking straight to the Turkish people. Surprisingly, it went down really well. Uh, so perhaps, you know, the, perhaps he's finding a, a way to connect with the Turkish people, which will make things even more difficult for Erdogan. Kirij Daroglu is even older than Erdogan. 74. So yeah, another older, yeah. another yeah. old white guy, but it would probably be uh, very good news for uh, Western country if it was him, um, because he, he can make a new start. And, uh, he got some good. I mean, he got some good news this Friday with the Kurdish-rooted HDP party formally endorsing him. And, and he assumed that he belongs to the religious minority of Alevit, yeah. and he has Kurdish support. And um, he's so much 
calmer and seems to be more modest. So I think for, for Europeans, it would be good news if there was a new start in Turkey after Erdogan, he, who is now throwing money. He raised the minimum wages. He raised the... As he basic, always does. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, he, yeah. He just, uh, that's his way of um, campaigning. But uh, as you said, the, the earthquake um, makes it even more difficult for him to win because... Uh, not only the mismanagement after the earthquake, but also his responsibility in accepting all these uh, laxist uh, construction sites and not um, not checking about the, the standards. So all this will hit him now. Yeah, and he's been um, he's been softening. You know, he comes from the party Ataturk's party, and he's been softening. You know, which is this resolutely secular party, and he's been. Uh, he's been softening the this this secular stance of that party to move it a bit closer to the the mainstream of the Turkish electorate, which is more socially conservative, um, and which is kind of Erdogan's base. And um, in doing that, he's making the party a more viable um, political uh, challenger to to Erdogan's you know de almost two decades long rule. And it's so that it's it's really a race now. Erdogan, though, still has all the levers of power. He's still got a lot of popularity in uh, many parts. And he got what sounds almost like an official endorsement during that uh, Thursday ceremony uh, from his Russian counterpart. You, President Erdogan, know how to set ambitious goals and confidently move towards their implementation. The ceremony also shows that the leadership of the Republic of Turkey and the president personally pays great attention to expanding Russian-Turkish relations in all areas. Shannon Vavra, was that an endorsement? You know, I think we've seen, obviously, a very back-and-forth relationship between Turkey and Russia, so it's definitely something to watch. Um, and if I can just add, too, I think one of the things that this, this health moment uh, that Erdogan had during the live television appearance reminds me and has me watching now is, of course, the disinformation front. Um, some speculation had circulated on social media about what his ailment was. There were some uh, apparently false allegations that he had a heart attack coming from um, some Chinese state media. Um, and the, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs has said, you know, we're not trying to meddle in, in other countries' elections. Um, but it's definitely a reminder that the space is ripe for potential disinformation, muddying of the playing field and influence. Um, so it's a, just something to definitely watch over the next couple of weeks as this election plays out. Yeah, r rumors about uh, leaders' health. Uh, that's uh, uh, it's there are a dime a dozen. First round slated for uh, May fourteenth. Uh, there have already, by the way, started casting ballots. Three point four million Turkish citizens abroad. Nearly half of them, Ulrika Kolderman, are in Germany, <laughs> and uh, it's it's interesting because uh, last time around, they, the, the 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 Turks of Germany voted. For Erdogan, a lot of them. Same as here in France, by the way. They do it. At the same time, they're happy not to be there. So it's a bit ambiguous. Um, Erdogan had wanted to campaign in Germany as well. Absolutely. <laughs> but there's also the problem that uh, Germany is very reluctant to give them citizenship. So it's, it's always... Um, a very complex situation and there are definitely some Turks who are very pro-Erdogan in Germany, but uh, I think it's, they're not representative of the Turkish community in Germany. 
All right, well, Turkey's next president will continue to have war on his doorstep across the Black Sea as Russia haggles over a grain export uh, deal with Ukraine. It's targeted cities across the country uh, before dawn, including with cruise missiles uh, fired presumably from the Caspian Sea. At least 24 killed to the latest count in the central city of uh, Uman. That uh, the attacks come as both sides brace uh, for big uh, counter offensives, and it's kind of a guessing game, Rob Parsons. Over uh, everybody's been talking up this counter offensive for so long. We're wondering when is it starting? Yeah, well, they've been talking about it for a long time, but the, 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 there has been no suggestion that it was going to come much earlier than now. The the betting, really serious betting, has been on. May, probably late May, early June, because that's in, in, in Ukraine is when the ground starts to get a bit harder. Up, up until early May, it's pretty wet because the, the spring is a very wet one in, uh, in Ukraine and the roads are very difficult to negotiate. And with heavy armor going across fields, which are soggy, it's not what you want. It's going to make life really difficult for anybody's counteroffensive, whether it's a Ukrainian one or, or an offensive by, by the Russians. So but it looks at this stage, or just the, the defence minister of Ukraine, Reznikov, uh, speaking just yesterday, was saying that they've got every, all, the, all the pieces in place now. Uh, they're just wait, waiting, he says, for the right moment to launch uh, the counteroffensive. We'll see. But m- my bet will be that it doesn't happen until the end, the end of this month or next month, rather. Shannon Vavra? Yeah, I think one thing that we could also keep in mind here is that Alexei Reznikov, as as my colleague just mentioned, was speaking the other day about this counteroffensive, and he said, you know, the the conversation about it may have been a little bit overheated um, in terms of expectations because obviously everybody on Ukrainian side and in sort of the Western world wants to have a victory. Um, something I'm curious about and watching for is will Ukraine take advantage of some strategic surprise opportunities, for instance? targeting in Kharkiv like they've done before to sort of catch the Russians off guard? Or will they focus more on the southwest sort of regions to sort of try to cut off that Russian land bridge through Crimea, uh, which has been a really central supply and logistics route for Russia? Um, Both, I think, would make a lot of sense for Ukraine, but I'll I'll be very curious to see where they go. And And is there the sense, let me ask you, Shannon, is there the sense that it's this time or never? Because uh, uh, we've talked a lot about the Russian losses, but uh, can the Ukrainians go through another year of this? I think it's a really good question. And I think what we should keep in mind is probably that it's not the end all be all for the war. We've heard U.S. officials talk about this war likely going into 2024, expectations that it's going to be a protracted war. Um, And I think we've heard that from Ukrainian officials as well who say, you know, don't expect one big counteroffensive and and then it'll be a hoopla and it'll be over. It's more a series of multiple counteroffensives. And I think we've seen that play out a little bit over the last several months, right, from the beginning of the war in 2022, where the conversation for Ukraine was, can we kick Russia out of the territory it's gaining in 2022? And the conversation has shifted to, can we kick Russia out of territory they took in 2014 out of Crimea as well? So I think we're going to see continual pushes. But again, you know, we'll have to see how it plays out. All right, that 2014, of course, including Crimea, which brings us to another topic. You've heard of reverse psychology. Whoever thought wolf warrior diplomacy would further the cause of peace and dialogue? 
Meet, if you will, China's ambassador to France, Liu Shai, renowned for his outspoken pronouncements on Taiwan, COVID, and more. The blog in French on the embassy's website, which is suspected to be of his uh, own doing, often incendiary. Last Saturday, during a grilling, uh, last Friday rather, during a grilling on cable uh, television news channel LCI here in France, he went so far as to question not only Ukraine's claim to Crimea. But the legitimacy of the 14 independent nations that spun off from Russia when the Soviet Union's collapsed. These ex-Soviet countries, they don't have actual status in international law because there is no international agreement to confirm their status as a sovereign country. Ambassadors got called in. Clarifications were issued in Beijing. And then on Wednesday... Xi Jinping did what his Ukrainian counterpart had been hoping for a long time, Chinese television reporting on uh, the president picking up the phone and calling Volodymyr Zelensky for the first time since Russia's all-out invasion began in February of 2022. Matthew Dalton, can we thank Liu Shai for that (laughs) phone call? Possibly. We don't really know exactly why he called, but I think it's a reasonable yeah. assumption that this was to try and um, to, to calm tensions, not just with Ukraine, but with Europe, generally speaking. And I think you have to it's worth remembering that China at one point was really wooing um, Europe and particularly Eastern Europe very strongly. They were trying to invest heavily um, in Eastern Europe all across that part of the a part of the continent. Um buying all kinds of infrastructure and, and buying factories, building roads. They, they, this is really a strategic objective of the Chinese government. That has sort of fallen by the wayside. They've really, that they've pulled back a lot. But the idea that um, they want to pull, that China really wants to pull Europe onto its side against, in this sort of strategic conflict that it has right now with the United States. And we saw, you know, Macron being, wined and dined when he went to Beijing and um, it, it, he, the, the red carpet was literally rolled out for him. And we saw what he said in, in terms of appearing to question European commitment to defending Taiwan. And so all of these things, you know, this is a big push by Beijing to try and bring um, Europe onto its side. But we were promised this phone call uh, at the time when uh, Xi Jinping went to Moscow and it didn't come, or at least it didn't come yet. Right. So we, I, I don't think you can, can assume necessarily that it was sparked because of what Luce said. But I think that the timing is certainly suggestive. And also, um, I, I think that, um, you know, that, that Europe is, is certainly, you know, they, they don't want to, to have a conflict with China. And so they were, they were happy to get this call. I think it was yeah. also a little bit Macron who was, uh, it, it was one of the very few results, political results, when Macron went to China, that uh, they said, okay, he's going to call, they're going to call at the, at the um, the moment's appropriate right. moment. So it, it was there, it, it was coming anyway. And when, when Lou was playing the agent provocateur, then it was probably the best time. And, and I mean, he's known for these provocative things when uh, after, in, in in the middle of COVID, he said that the French were uh, leaving their old people dying in their ho- yeah. care homes. And I mean, he, he's known uh, to create scandals once in a while. And the foreign ministry, Chinese foreign ministry, was very quick to disavow and 
um, say that it's not the public um, opinion. It's not the pu public position um, of China. So um, but I think it was more Macron pushing for this than actually the, the ambassador. Robert Parsons, did Lu Shai uh, just go rogue? Or did he blurt out openly what China thinks, for instance, on whether Crimea belongs to Ukraine or Russia? My, my feeling is he went rogue. But I mean, he, he's got a remit to, to say lots of uh, aggressive, provocative things. Uh, and normally speaking, he's in line with Communist Party thinking about where China is going. This time, I think he, for whatever reason, allowed himself to get out of sync with the the Communist Party leadership, and she obviously in particular in Beijing. I mean, it's interesting what he said on just another point. As well. you, you said just now that the, the 14 republics separated away from the Soviet Union. They didn't separate fr from Russia, rather. They didn't separate from Russia. They separated from the Soviet Union, as did Russia. So what Ambassador Liu said about these countries, including Ukraine, obviously, applies equally to Russia, which also emerged as a separate republic from the breakup of the Soviet Union. And, and that's got to make not just the Baltic states nervous, but also places like uh, Kazakhstan. Some of these former Soviet republics Absolutely. don't even have borders with Russia, Absolutely. but which instead is, with China. Why, which is why I think the Chinese rode back so quickly. Right. So it's the, they don't have designs on, say, Tajikistan or Kyrgyzstan. No, they, they do have designs in a sense that they want to move into areas that up until now have been regarded as the traditional territory, the near abroad, as the Russians call it, uh, of Moscow. China wants to push Russia out of the centra, uh, Central Asia. <laughs> Shannon Favre, you agree? <laughs> One thing I think we need to remember, too, about China, just in terms of timing of this phone call with Zelensky and territorial ambition, is that at the outset of the Ukraine war, just days before China had had this conversation with Russia about the so-called No Limits Partnership, and then Russia invades, and then U.S. intelligence officials inform everybody that Xi Jinping, according to their intelligence, was actually caught off guard by that. And so I think we see this balancing act from, from Xi Jinping and from China about territorial ambition, particularly as we consider what China is going to do about Taiwan or not do about Taiwan. Um, and so I think we see, we see this balancing act from China here. Um, and I think as, as far as the reaction in Europe goes, we've seen many foreign ministers come out and say, you know, this is exactly why we don't think think China should be trying to broker a peace here in Ukraine. Um, but we see that these relationships continuing to mold even to even to this day. And what irked, uh, Shannon, the uh, the Ukrainians was that the Chinese named uh, a diplomat who would be in charge uh, of brokering. But it wasn't somebody from their Europe bureau, it was somebody from their Eurasia bureau. Yes, I believe it was someone who's a former, and correct me if I'm wrong, a former ambassador to Russia, which is a very interesting choice. And I think, and I'm curious what the, the rest of the uh, panel thinks today on this. The um, conversation that Zelensky had about their phone call afterwards was, you know, we need to lean on China here and take advantage of the leverage they have and the power they have. And I'm curious where everyone thinks that relationship is going to. Rico Kulterman, this, China was Ukraine's number one trading partner before the fighting began in February 2021. Yeah, and I think there are several leaders who think that uh, if there's one country who has an influence on Russia, then it's China. And it's Macron was pushing for it, and then the Germans are also pushing 
China into that direction. They, they don't really want them to be the mediator, but still use its influence. But on the same hand, they are very skeptical that, uh, that it will happen because China will always keep its close ties to Russia and um, they, they, they try to be neutral and they, they're not using any influence. I mean, the, the, we'll, the, we'll always keep its close ties to Russia. You just heard Robert Parsons say they're close, but they're also happy to sap Russia's power. Mm. Yes, but they're still dependent and they still need their energy and they still need them as a trade partner. So um, I, I think they, they will not meddle. And what they, they only, the only thing that when Scholz went um, and they were asking and trying and uh, pushing them into the, the direction to be more active in, in Ukraine. And the only thing what they said is, uh, so please don't use nuclear weapons. And that was so... Like nothing really that came out, but they're not going to do more than that. I think. Yeah, I think China was is very happy to buy um, discounted Russian oil. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I mean, it's been Russia along with India. China has become the big buyer of uh, of Russian oil since the war in Ukraine began, and um, yeah, obviously that gives China a lot of leverage over Russia. But it that may not be a situation that really they're inclined <coughs> to change, and also given the fact that. China, just like Russia, is in a big fight with the United States. And so they, they, it's not just Europe that's in play here. It's the United States. They're both countries' relationship with the United States. And, and they are competing in Africa as well. I mean, both are very, very active and investing. And uh, Russia has a Wagner mercenaries in several countries. China is uh, for years investing, investing, investing. So there's also another playing field where they are competing. You mentioned the German chancellor. He's a social democrat. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Ulrike Kohlerman, but the Western press has been gushing ever since her visit to uh, Beijing. The German foreign minister, she's a green uh, uh, because of her straight talk when it comes to Beijing. What is Germany's policy? The thing is, we have a coalition. And <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes there are several um, parts of this coalition that are not really talking the same language. Robert Parsons, uh, the uh, right now, the role of uh, China since you, since Macron's trip, picking up on the point made earlier by by Ulrika, the role of China in Ukraine, how is it evolving? Well, look, you know, the, the, the Chinese are trying to position themselves so that they can play perhaps a similar role to the one they played in the relationship, the talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, they see themselves as a as one of the major powers in the world now. That it, they want to be in a position to take a key leading role, as the United States has always done up until now, in, in settling these sort of disputes. And that's why the Chinese are presenting themselves now as neutral, although many people in the West would not regard them as neutral at all. That's why they keep repeating this. You know, we are neutral. We're not going to pour... Uh, fire, uh, alcohol, whatever the expression was, petrol onto the, onto the fire. But they're using We're, Russia's talking points when they describe, the, yeah, they exactly. called it, yeah. the, the yeah. readout yeah, of the phone what, call no, between Zelensky and, and yeah. she uh, yeah. called it a cr the crisis in Ukraine, yeah, didn't nobody, mention Russia's invasion. Exactly. Nobody's very convinced at this stage. And the 12-point plan that they put forward was regarded by the Ukrainians and by supporters of Ukraine as a complete non-starter. They weren't even consulted. Yeah, they weren't even consulted, yeah. But it's important for the Ukrainians to keep the Chinese on side. You know, they, they recognize that if anybody can influence Moscow, it, it is Beijing. And that, it's very important for them. And just them. one final point on that, Chanavavra, because the um, National Security Council spokesperson at the White House after that phone call called it, quote, a good thing, 
explain with the enmity these days between Beijing and Washington. Can you explain a little? You know, I think when we look at the relationship between U.S. and China, one thing to remember, too, is that U.S. officials, when they talk about China's relationship to a potential conflict with Taiwan, they say conflict is not inevitable. And so I think seeing this conversation where China's interested in potentially brokering peace or a ceasefire or I think what they're calling a political settlement might look like good news to to Washington. Um, and I think it's also important we remember when it comes to the Chinese perspective, historically, it's all about winning wars without actually fighting them. Um, and so I wonder if it's this focus on increased diplomacy that might be might be a good sign. But still, I don't think that brokering is their main interest. I think the main interest is always economical interest and um, probably already looking at the at the phase of the reconstruction of Ukraine and they need parts in that and that's why they're trying to start to get a bit more involved. Washington, the U.S. wants the war to be over and I think they realize that the only country out there that can really, to some extent, force Russia to the table is China because without China's support, they're not going to have a huge buyer for their oil they're going to lose access to a lot of manufactured goods that they need, particularly for their military right now with, with all the sanctions that the West had placed. So I don't think Russia is really in a viable position without Chinese support. Um, and so to the extent that Russia can, uh, China can force Russia to the negotiating tables to some extent, that's, that's probably what Washington understands at this point. And that will be the final note for now on this. Of course, we'll continue to follow. Matthew Dalton, I want to thank you so much. I want to thank Ulrika Kolderman, Robert Parsons, Shannon Vavra in Washington. Thank you for being with us here in the world this week.